The Folklore Podcast continues purely thanks to the support of its Patreon donors, who receive exclusive content and bonus material in return for a small monthly donation, beginning at just a dollar. To join them, support the show, and access more content, including some extra material for this episode, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. Thank you. Hello and welcome again to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. In the last episode of the Folklore Podcast, I remarked on the fact that a number of especially engaged listeners had kindly volunteered to help in various ways with the podcast. One of these is Joanna Veranda, who's heading up the group interested in writing and researching for the show. Joanna lives in the Lake District, and so does our guest on this episode. Why record an episode over Skype when you can do it in person? And after five seasons, why inflict my voice on you all every episode when someone else can have a turn? To that end, I dispatched Joanna to the Storyteller's House in Ambleside to meet our very special guest for this episode, Taffy Thomas, MBE. Now, if you're listening to this episode in the week that it comes out, then you may know that this is National Storytelling Week and so an ideal time to speak with the first Storyteller Laureate about his career and life with stories. Taffy is the patron of the Society for Storytelling, has received the English Folk Dance and Song Society Gold Badge Award, and was once commented on by a fellow professional storyteller as such an institution that when he was gone, it would be like a library burning down. Taffy's collected repertoire of around 300 stories, collected mostly in the traditional oral style, makes him the most experienced and respected of all English storytellers. He's performed in many countries on four continents, and as part of this interview, performed for our Patreon supporters. More about that at the end of the interview. For now, here is Taffy Thomas MBE in conversation with Joanna Veranda. How did you become involved in this area? How did you learn storytelling? And how did your storytelling garden in Grasmere come about? Hmm. How did I become involved in storytelling? Well, I've always been interested in folk arts and folk tradition. And uh, uh, when I was a, a boy at school, I started a folk club in in the school museum this was at Yeovil Grammar School in Somerset and we had a lad called Chris Foster who could sing and play guitar and he started a folk club and uh, from that I progressed to uh, going to the local folk song club in Yeovil which was run by a folk group called the Yetis (laughs) because they came from Yetminster 
in Dorset and uh, to get in to the folk club you either had to do the door or uh, perform and uh, so I started off doing a bit of singing but sometimes I did the door and notably I did the door once when our guest was Paul Simon on his first ever visit to England and I charged him, tried to charge him to get in. <laughs> this strange little man in a gabardine mac with a guitar turned up at the door and I put my hand out and said, half a crown. He said, but, but I'm Paul Simon. I said, well, it's half a crown. And he said, if I don't come in, there's no show. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if he remembers. I think we paid him the, the great fee for that evening of doing two half hours at our folk club of fifteen pounds. <laughs> Is that what he got paid? That's what he got paid. Oh, and that was his fee on that tour. Oh. Yeah. And so, how did uh, that lead to well, well, coming um, to Grasmere then? Gradually, the uh, the uh, the introductions to the uh, songs turned themselves into little stories and some of the songs were ballads that were narrative. One of the evenings at the Yoa Folk Club we had a duo called Mudge and Clutterbuck and uh, they performed a puppet show at the Folk Club. In the first half they did Punch and Judy <laughs> and then they stretched a screen across the booth and did shadow puppets illustrating ballads in the second half. And I thought, now that's, that's a good idea. Well, fairly soon after that, Dave Mudge and John Remsbury, for that's who they were, packed in that duo. And I just thought it's a good idea. So as soon as I went to college in the Midlands to train to be a teacher and got involved in running the college folk club, I started a shadow puppet group called Magic Lantern. And took it up and uh, but also I went to folk music camps where I learned to be a caller for the country dance sessions so then a local community arts group many years later called Welfare State International who were based in Alverston mm. uh, started to do a tour of barn dances which were country dances, but with performance slots in the middle of, in the, in between the dances. Well, people got their breath back. <laughs> and they needed somebody to join the, their company who could both call the dances and do puppets. So I, it was suggested I was the person for the job. <laughs> and I took that on and did several tours with Welfare State International. And during one of those tours up here, we went... To do a night for uh, the final for the rap evening of a community play at the Brewery Arts Centre in Kendall, mm. and the choreographer for that community play was a lovely blonde lady called Christine. And it was noted in the band that I seemed far more interested in the choreographer than the people dancing. <laughs> and uh, to be honest, I was. And uh, the next time I came up for a welfare state tour. I asked her out and uh, we started going out 
then we started go, staying in and <laughs> and uh, and we married that was 40 years ago and uh, we're still together we have three children one of each because it was a boy a girl and a baby but the baby is now a 35 year old woman so <laughs> so that's what brought me to the lake district love and a carrot yeah as an old Suffolk farmer once said to me, Well, Taff, we never thought you'd ever leave us, but love will draw you where gunpowder wouldn't blast you. Which is, <laughs> I just love that because it's perfect Suffolk because that's where I was living immediately before I came to the lakes down mm. in East Anglia and Suffolk. But I've just kept singing songs and telling stories until at the age of 35 whilst performing at the Rossendale Carnival, I suffered a massive stroke, which cost me my speech and the left side of my body, but also cost me my ability to pitch accurately. So my singing days ended then. Mm. Uh, but I used storytelling, which I'd done with the Shadow Puppets, to learn to speak again. Mm. And uh, then Chrissy, my wife and I, needed an office space in Grasmere where we lived because we had a tiny cottage and three children and uh, uh, a room came up at uh, National Trust property church style and we were told we could have it providing we did something with a garden which was a head high jungle and we just had the vision to turn into the storyteller's garden mm -hmm. which is a unique open air venue for storytelling. And in 1999, we opened the Storyteller's Garden. And we've continued to do some events there through the year, particularly seasonal ones. Mm -hmm. Halloween, Easter in the Storyteller's Garden, Halloween in the Storyteller's Garden, and Christmas in the Storyteller's Garden. Although occasionally, if we have a WI group or a school that want to come for a story picnic, we do that, or just a group of local families group of families in the area mm. who want to come to the story garden mm. but it's probably underused but that's more to do with climate here in the lake district yeah. than, than indolence on my part because i'm 70 years old and not interested in retiring and recently i was asked by the local paper when i was going to retire and i said when they shut the lid of the box <laughs> And maybe not even then. <laughs> so that's how we had the Storyteller's Garden and how I got started as a storyteller. And I've continued to add to my repertoire, making the decision fairly early on that whenever possible my stories would come from people. Although I do occasionally get them from books, but I set collecting them from the tradition. A lot of them came from Scottish traveling people mm -hmm. notably betsy white who wrote a wonderful book called the yellow on the broom and duncan williamson and they were really my mentors really mm. so i do a show called ancestral voices which pays tribute to all of the people who've given me the stories over the years how i get to meet them and the tale they gave me that's fantastic so keeping on the tradition yeah i see i think I, there was wonderful expression in Scotland which is for people who are closest to the tradition they refer to them as a tradition bearer 
Mm. And I'm happy to be considered a tradition bearer. Like a torch bearer. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm just providing the link to the next generation, mm. which is why I've taken the decision in recent years to put as many of my collection of stories as I can into books, into print. Mm, yeah. And the History Press have a series of uh, stories from different counties, and I started off doing folk tales of Cumbria. Mm. And then they did a series of uh, for children. And I've done Lakeland folk tales for children, mm-hmm. and then there's a seasonal series. So I did midwinter folk tales, mm-hmm. and then I did a couple of books to mark the bicentenary of World War One, which were actually not history, but stories that were told either in the trenches or by the people who were left behind. Mm-hmm. But I've always felt close to nature and keen that um, uh, in my performance I have try and link people to this gently spinning, spinning globe that we're all clinging on to mm-hmm. so uh, and I've always loved birds when I was a boy my father and my grandfathers who were both in particular my grandfathers very instrumental in me uh, being interested in the spoken word song, I would go walking with them and they would point out the birds to me and name them. Mm. So I knew the names of our common garden birds and wild birds to identify them. Mm. Though I'd never say I was a twitcherer, I've always had a, a knowledge and an interest in in birds and bird life. And they had at a local visitor centre, Hadrian's Wall, a couple of years ago, they had a bird weekend and they said, Taffy, do you have any stories about birds? And I said, yes. So I did a performance and it went well. So at the end of the performance, I turned to Chrissy, my wife, and said, a few more of those and there'll be enough for a book. Mm. And I mentioned it to the History Press and they thought, that's a great idea. So uh, they commissioned me to write... Uh, the Magpie's Nest, a treasury of bird folk tales, mm-hmm. which has been very interesting because a lot of the other books I have to uh, uh, push quite hard, but the bird folk tales one is doing really well. Mm, he said, looking for some wood to touch, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's partly because it's beautifully illustrated by a local artist, a local young artist called Becca Hall, mm. who was a young five-year-old girl in the infant school that I used to go and tell stories mm. to, and has gone on to be a professional illustrator and is now working with me occasionally, which is fabulous. Dream come true for her, isn't it? Well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned earlier that um, storytelling keeps everyone in the globe going. Uh, yeah. So that was the second question. Was, I mean, I sometimes say... What is that, the art? Well, well storytelling uh, preserves the past, mm. reveals the present, and creates the future. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... What would you say, storytelling exactly? is, is the radical alternative to sound bites, but oh. I've just done one. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, what would you say is like the day-to-day of a storyteller? What sort of um... the day-to-day of a storyteller? Well, uh, if you wish to survive as a professional storyteller, then it involves uh, 
a lot of admin <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a lot of networking, keeping in contact. Like I'm now noting at the beginning of a year, the ones, my regular ones that I visit, that it's been maybe a year and thinking about letting them know that I'm still, still may, here. <laughs> that they don't know that I'm, I've not retired because I'm 70 years old. I wonder if they think, <laughs> let them know I'm still doing it really. Uh, um, keep, uh, trying to keep a website up to date, mm -hmm. which is the hardest thing really. Yeah. My website is not always up to date, but we do our best to, uh, uh our youngest daughter who works in PR said that my website is embarrassing. She says it's like the sort of website a pair of pensioners would have. <laughs> then I point out to her that we are actually a pair of pensioners. <laughs> and she just smiles and says, yes, but I don't see it that way. <laughs> I think it looks great. It's very pretty, very green. <laughs> well, it is what it says on, <laughs> on, a, does on what the it says tin. On a tin. tin yeah. <laughs> um, so who would you consider to be some of the greatest storytellers in history? You've already mentioned earlier that you learned from the greatest. Well, um, the greatest storytellers in history. Well, Maybe uh, even before the ones that you mentioned earlier, the um, Scottish. Um, um, well, uh, well, the travelling people, the gypsies and travelling folk, held on to their oral tradition for a lot longer than the rest of us. Mm. That said, you don't ever see a... A trailer now if you go to Appleby that doesn't have the television aerial so <laughs> <laughs> any uh, historical figures maybe um, that you think were good historical figures um, I would certainly have s some authors I think Thomas Hardy is probably mm. a very very fine story to, and a lot all of, but you see there again his short stories were basically folk tales that he hardyized and committed to print but they were told within an oral tradition like the the withered arm and so on to, to grab probably the best known of his short story mm. and I also think in recent years J.K. Rowling is very influenced by the oral tradition mm. Mm. in uh, Tolkien of course of course <laughs> and who includes riddles in in various things mm -hmm. and and a selection of little people, <laughs> love tales of the little people, fairy stories. And it annoys me that the Victorians called all folk tales fairy tales. If I'm doing fairy tales, there are stories about fairies, pixies, elves, and so on, you know, <laughs> I, uh, the magical ones. Um, whereas, I mean, not all folk tales are magical. No. But they have a morality and they're important in the development of literacy because you can't write a story unless you can tell a story and you can't tell a story unless you've heard a story mm. that's why we storytellers have the key to it <laughs> are there any particular areas of folklore that you think are perfect for storytelling you mentioned earlier that you like the bird folklore and um just now um, folk tales and fairy tales well I'm very also very interested in calendar customs mm. and most of the calendar customs have folk tales attached to them I mean for example 
Ottery St Mary in Devon, where on bonfire night they run through the street with burning barrels on their shoulders. And I've done it. There is a photo of me carrying a barrel through Ottery St Mary. Mm. But there is a story, a folk tale of how that came to start, which is linked to uh, Philip of Spain Mm. sending his ships over here. Oh, I see. And a boy having to uh, light the beacon on the edge of Ottery St Mary to warn... To warn of the invasion. Of the invasion, yeah. And he was a butcher boy. And in those days, butchers had outside their shop a smouldering tar barrel mm. to frighten away insect life and keep, keep it pure. Mm. So this boy, when he heard a Spanish ship had been spotted out in Lime Bay, ran out of the shop, grabbed the burning barrel on his shoulders and ran the two miles all the way to Beacon Hill, Mm. running fast so the flames streamed out behind him rather than licking around his ears. Mm. And he just managed to throw the burning barrel onto the bonfire, causing it to burst into flame, warning of the invasion of, of the Spaniards before dropping dead from a mixture of exhaustion and the burns he'd sustained Mm. on his run. Now I can't tell you of that boy's name, but suffice it to say, every November the 5th to this day, the men, the women and the children of Ottery St Mary run through the streets at their carnival with burning tar barrels on their shoulders. Mm. And people think, why are they doing that? But those who know the story know why. And now everyone will know as well. Thank you for sharing that. So what's your favourite um, folklore to talk about and tell stories about? Probably um, I, my one of the things I've made my own, or not, other, uh, I share with loads of other people, but riddles. Mm. I love riddles because I always say to an audience I've got your ears now I need your brains <laughs> so you know I'm going to ask you a riddle now don't you? Me? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> if I can't answer <laughs> I'm sometimes short I'm sometimes tall sometimes I'm not true at all, what am I? Imagination? <laughs> no? <laughs> no. Uh, short, tall Storytelling? A story. Ah, a story. Sometimes short. Sometimes a story might not be true, yes. Sometimes short. Short stories. Short stories. Tall, tall stories. Tall tales. When yeah. your nose goes, sometimes <laughs> just not true at all. Oh, that's you it. You got there. <laughs> <laughs> now I've got your brain working now for sure. Yeah, well, I said imagination because I was thinking sometimes in people's imaginations runs wild and they also yeah. believe things that... <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, um, riddles. So usually, I, there's a riddle that links in some way to a story I tell. Mm. So if I was going to tell, normally, if I was going to tell the uh, tar barrel story, before I told the story, I would say, do the riddle. Your greedy friend, by your side, my place. I make. I'll eat everything you feed to me, but a drink I'll never take. 
fire. Mm. So that's the way I stitch a performance together. Riddle story, riddle story. Mm. Then there are some stories where the whole of the story is a riddle, which caused me to do a book for the History Press called The Riddle in the Tale of Riddles and Riddle Stories. So the Magpie's Nest wasn't your first book with the History Press? No. The first one was Cumbria Folk Tales, or Folk Tales of Cumbria. Mm. The Magpie's Nest is the 13th, I think. But it's been lucky for me, so I'm not superstitious. <laughs> That's why you wanted to knock on wood <laughs> earlier. Yeah. Mm. Now, having done that collaboration with Becca Hall, the illustrator... We're now looking at the next book for the History Press, which I think is going to be... uh, Yes, it is going to be, because I've received the contract. um, A Feast of Food Folk Tales. Ooh. Stories good enough to eat. That does sound nice. So that'll be good. Yeah. So every story will link either to an ingredient or a dish. That's good. (laughs) I like that. So could you tell us a little bit about the Society for Storytelling? Well, the Society for Storytelling is a way of linking storytellers together. It's not an agency, although the Society does have a website which reveals it would be easy to find if you were a school or a village hall that wanted a professional storyteller. You could probably find the one who is geographically nearest to you Mm. from using the Society for Storytelling and also find the storytelling club or group that is nearest to you. And of course, finding the one that's nearest to you is better for the planet (laughs) because you won't have to drive quite so far for one. (laughs) So the one nearest to us right now takes place um, every month, is it? First Tuesday of the month in, in a pub in Ings near Kendall Mm. and that club came about because uh, twice in the last centuries it is now (laughs) I received a year's contract as storyteller in residence once over in uh, England's forgotten wilderness the North Pennines (laughs) as the North Pennines storyteller in 1991 then in 1995, I was the South Lakeland storyteller in residence. Mm. And in both cases, there was a small retainer fee. But then any organisation that was a not-for-profit organisation could have me to do a session, a story session for them, uh, for free. The trouble is that... A lot of these in those areas, they still think I'm their storyteller in residence and do it for free. Which, but in both cases, the local arts officers asked me to start a storytelling club because if I was going to enthuse people with this art, then people would want to do it, hopefully, and they would need somewhere to do it. Mm. So I found in South Lakeland. The Watermiller Ings is not only the best real ale pub in in the northwest of England, but also had a landlord then who was very keen to open his doors to us to run a monthly club there on the first Tuesday of the month. Mm-hmm. He has since died, and the pub moved on to his son, 
but sadly Brian died very young last year, only about 50. Mm -hmm. But the pub is still kept going by his widow and his sons who are late teens, just I think getting old enough to take the license now. So, mm -hmm. so we're still there with that family and in the, in that pub and mm -hmm. we get probably about 30 or so pe people each month although for the Christmas night and uh, special nights even more mm, of course so and uh, I host it and uh, stories from the floor and uh, we occasionally have guest storytellers but we can't charge people to get in because it's in one of the bars mm. but we have trained even though it's in a bar we've trained both the staff and the people who come to be very respectful when people are telling stories and we get very good listening so it's uh it's, it's the best free night out in the lake district <laughs> i bet it is drink and stories what tune more and a tale <laughs> well, we have some music as well we music have musicians, as well a bit of folk music links in Whenever possible, I link my stories to music mm. and song. It is, I, after all, part of your yeah, past Yeah, it's all well. part of the uh, my roots. And, and there's a very fine fiddler in Northumbrian Piper called Paul Knox, who I regularly work with, and, mm. and a couple of good singers, Tony Farron, who plays guitar and sings. Mm who, like you, used to work for the National Trust. He was, <laughs> he was the auditor <laughs> in those days. And, mm. and then there's another lass who works at the Sage Music Centre in Gateshead called Amy Leach, who sings. And every Christmas, my eldest daughter, called Asta, performs with me, and we uh, do a set of Christmas stories on Christmas Day, Yay. I even work on Christmas Day <laughs> in the Armathwaite Hotel, which is probably one of the poshest hotels in the Lake District and mm. certainly one of the most expensive. And uh, we always do Christmas Day in the evening after they've had their buffet, an hour of traditional Christmas stories. Mm. Some, some uh, religious some just seasonal, mm. a real mixture. Mm. Um, what would you say is the best way to preserve and record all these stories? By telling them and listening to them. Yeah, the knows. only way you can harm a story is by not telling it. Mm. I say that when people are starting and they say, what if I mess it up? What will I, it's a responsibility. You can't, you can't damage it. The only way you'll damage it is if you bottle out of telling it. <laughs> mm, if it remains static and untouched. Yeah. So you, you believe that if mm. someone picks up a story, they should yeah. always add a little bit of themselves. That's yeah. okay. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, there are stories I tell that I, I mean, I have quite a few fishing stories because I had a year uh, when I went to Padstow in Cornwall mm. and worked as a fisherman but that was largely to collect the stories of that fishing community because the skipper said I can't really afford to pay you he was in his retirement year and I said you can pay me in mackerel and stories <laughs> and he did <laughs> mm. and he also when I was courting Chrissy 
gave me a lobster to take home to her when I brought up on the train from Cornwall to the Lake District. Alive. Wrapped in wet sacking, alive, yeah. And around about Birmingham made a break for freedom down the aisle. <laughs> and I raced after it and grabbed it and an old lady said, Is that lobster wild? I said, well, it's not pleased. <laughs> and then I arrived at Chrissy's door with a lobster and she looked at me and said, most men bring me flowers. <laughs> <laughs> I said, never mind that, just get the saucepan boiling. <laughs> so we dined on lobster that night. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> um, do you um, think that storytelling varies between different cultures and people? Like, would you say, for example, it differs from Cornwall to Cumbria, from England to Scotland, or even um, Scotland to China? <laughs> I would say it, it varies a lot between... Uh, Cornwall and Cumbria mm. and the home counties mm. but not so much between Cornwall and Cumbria because they're both quite geographically remote mm-hmm. on the extremes uh, east and west so uh, so the more has been preserved because of because it's a long way to anywhere yeah have to drive a long way yeah. to get anywhere you do in you discover it <laughs> <laughs> anyway but um but there are certain things that all cultures have stories about. Uh, love, war, birth and death, I mm-hmm. mean, and nature. So there are always things in common. Mm-hmm. And all cultures seem to have an interest of some kind in some sort of riddle or puzzle. Mm-hmm. Partly, I think, as people like to... Uh, engage the people they're talking to by getting them thinking and swapping ideas mm-hmm. and like you did earlier with me mm, like but I just did. completely failed <laughs> not completely <laughs> did get there in the end <laughs> you did get there in the end which is the important thing uh, I just have a long time to think just a slightly longer journey then. <laughs> sluggish <laughs> <laughs> now we're moving on to your book now and so um, you already mentioned earlier um, how the uh, bird uh, looking for stories about birds came about. Um, but what appeals to you about bird stories? Living here with, lucky enough to be here with a nice garden mm-hmm. with quite a few birds around. I mean, last year or, uh, no, it was last spring. There was an old, there is an old blackbird's nest on the rock mm-hmm. by my kitchen window. Mm-hmm. And it became occupied again. A new, uh, a returning pair of blackbirds started to fettle the nest. And uh, by standing on tiptoe when they weren't there, I could count the five eggs. And just waited very excitedly for uh, five yellow beaks to appear over the top of the nest when they hatched and and then they were gone and spring and summer were here <laughs> it's just the way it, they they mark the seasons really i mm. i think it's the it's uh, and also keen that they survive really because they're a measure of how how well or how badly we're doing at preserving the planet mm. at the moment is yeah. and there are a lot of very 
precious birds like the curlew where numbers are decreased quite severely mm-hmm. and worryingly low and we have to do what we can to make sure we don't have any of our popular garden birds becoming extinct. Mm-hmm. Mm. What's your favourite bird story from your book? My favourite bird story from the book is um, one I got from uh, Duncan Williamson, the traveller again, the story of how the birds got their colours, mm. which I call Mother Nature's paintbrush. Now, uh, I was a bit worried when I heard the story and when Duncan told it, it was very cheesy and Duncan, like most travellers, was quite a devout old-style Christian mm. and I'm not particularly. <laughs> so I thought, how can I tell any of those stories which are creation stories? Because mm. I've got quite a lot of creation stories which are magical, which I love, but not completely confident at having a big bearded male god as the mm. creator. So I asked my granddaughter, who was, when she was about eight years old, she lives in Australia, and I just said, Honour, the world is a very beautiful place. Who made it this beautiful? And she said to me, Mother Nature. Mm. I thought, that's it. <laughs> Anywhere now where I need a creator in the story, I say Mother Nature. Mm-hmm. And Christians are quite happy to accept that. So are the Muslims, so are people of all, mm-hmm. all faiths and no faiths. So Mother Nature, it is. Mm-hmm. Mm. Even my vicar, a lot of vicar friends, one of whom refers to me as a healthy agnostic. Yeah. <laughs> what does that entail? <laughs> means I <laughs> means I cheer them on from the sidelines, <laughs> embracing the uh, the seasonal nature of mm-hmm. the religion. Mm-hmm. For example, I have already looked up to check when Ash Wednesday and Shrove Tuesday are partly because that means that now I know it's in February when we have the February Storytelling Club I can do Shrove Tuesday, Shrove Tuesday Jack went to plough his mother made pancakes she didn't know how she flipped them, she tossed them until they were black with soot from the ceiling she poisoned Poor Jack. <laughs> it's a very old-fashioned traditional rhyme. It's a bit of nonsense, but I'll tell that at the club and they'll have pancakes on the menu. And hopefully no one will be poisoned. Hopefully nobody will be poisoned, <laughs> but we'll have a chuckle. But it's just marking the seasons, really. Mm-hmm. When I particularly enjoy, I have a number of stories about... It's... Uh, enjoying the fact that it's cold in winter Mm. and hot in the summer the pleasure of wearing warm jumpers and sitting by a fire trading stories in the winter and wearing light clothing and telling stories at a picnic in the summer Mm. it gives variety to life precious variety and does it smell of grasmere gingerbread as well (laughs) there is indeed yes um, would you say that bird lore is different in Cumbria compared to the rest of the country? 
Every region has uh, particular varieties of birds have their own name. I mean, for example, the heron in Lakeland is a jammy crane. Mm -hmm. In Ireland, it's a crying crane. And there are equivalents to that for other birds as well. I mean, the, in some areas, uh, the house martin is called a martlet, but in other areas, not. Mm. So it's mainly in the names, I think, that the. We used. To, uh, some of the law now has changed because of science. Mm -hmm. I mean, because the. Uh, Swallows were not seen in the winter and uh, and were suddenly seen in spring and summer. Mm -hmm. People believed that they actually flew and hid under the ice in ponds and so on in winter and then re-emerged mm. before GPS showed that they actually fly to Africa and back. There's no way people could conceive that as being a possibility before science proved it to be true. <laughs> so that bit of law is gone. Mm. And the cuckoo also um, disappeared and then reappeared in the spring. In fact, there are places that have a day at the time the cuckoo normally reappears called Cuckoo Day. <laughs> or have cuckoo fairs down in Sussex when the cuckoo returns. But they believed that the cuckoo went into fairy forts and lived with the fairies in the winter and then re-emerged in the spring. All those strange little bits of law. But again, I mention the law about the cuckoo there that I mentioned in Sussex also exists in Somerset where they have cuckoo day, but slightly different. And one of the stories in my collection the Borrowdale Cuckoo, uh, which is about the uh, the wiseacres or the... Uh, it's a sort of rural fool story, really, in Borrowdale, noted that whenever the cuckoo was there, it was summer. So they thought if they could keep the cuckoo, it would always be summer. <laughs> so they built a wall around the nest like a chimney around a tree which had a nest with a cuckoo in it to keep it there until for the whole of summer to keep summer and they just put the top layer of bricks up when the cuckoo just flew upwards and over the top and flew away mm. and one old man turned the other said look at that he said it was knob at a course too low <laughs> <laughs> but they've got the same story down in in Somerset where they they make a hedge around a bush with a cuckoo in it mm. and the same story exists over in Marston in Yorkshire so the Marston cuckoo and the Borrowdale cuckoo even though they're geographically 80 miles apart maybe 100 miles are almost identical mm -hmm. Just shows how these stories travel. They travel uh, with as long as people, the people take the yeah. stories with them. You know, that's right. People migrate like the mm. birds, mm. <laughs> and stories have legs. Mm.
They have legs and they have wings. Mm. <laughs> I was going to move on now to the question that I personally was curious to asking you, which is, have you ever thought about taking on an apprentice? And the, does the idea of passing on all your knowledge to someone else bring you fear or joy? It brings me joy, and I'd found the person, but it ended sadly. I mean, there was a young lad called Harry Swardy, who was here in Ambleside at the university doing the outdoor activities course. And he was a friend of my youngest daughter's, and uh, Harry and some of his mates used to come and help me with events. Mm. And he asked if he could be apprenticed to me. And I said he could. And then a few years ago, it's probably five years ago now, Harry, he was 21, um, on uh, New Year's Eve, posted online, it's going to be a great year for me. This is the year I'm Taffy's apprentice. And then Harry and his friends went down to Cornwall. And it was that uh, New Year's Eve when there were the massive storms mm. and my daughter phoned up on New Year's Day morning and said you saw on the news there was a 21 year old boy washed into the sea at Bedrothan Steps in Cornwall and drowned I said yes she said that was Harry oh. so I lost him but I, all I could do then was go and tell a story at his funeral <laughs> mm. he was he would have been perfect because he was really really he was a poet an amateur poet and absolutely passionate about the environment mm -hmm. and keen about just nature and everything he was he would have been so perfect but it wasn't to be oh maybe somebody else would come along because i i'm certainly keen that the stories and the skills outlive me mm -hmm. although i hope i have at least another 10 years but as i say i'm 70 now you know, maybe even my dad's 99, so who knows? It's in your genes. <laughs> I hope it is. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe put out a um, a request with the podcast, see if anyone wants to volunteer to be your next apprentice. <laughs> Would you like to do that? Uh, well, I think I, I'm probably rather than advertise it. If somebody seeks me out and comes and said what I can, you know, hmm. let it be then I know that that person's got the initiative to have found me and, you know. Means they're really interested. Yeah. It's like a test. <laughs> well, sort of. Well, test is too strong a word. But, I mean, I think at the moment, I, I think my uh, granddaughter, who's now 10, is probably my apprentice. I mean, whenever at her school in Australia they're doing a play, she already lands the job of narrator. And... Uh, <laughs> So, uh, she quite fond of storytelling very as well. much so, yes. Mm, that's good. And I've just had her and her sister and her dad and mum here for a fortnight because they're bushfire refugees. Mm. They decided to go and spend Christmas and New Year in New South Wales, although they live in Victoria. Christmas on the beach, <laughs> then I had to flee the fires, made it back to Victoria to their home near Castlemaine, and then. Uh, following day received a red alert for their area mm -hmm. so jumped got in the car and with a few things 
and got to Melbourne Airport while the road was still open and flew to Europe. Mm-hmm. At the moment, they're still over here. They've had two weeks with us. They're having a week in Spain. And then in a week's time, they fly back to Victoria State in Australia to pick up the threads and make a decision about whether to settle back down to their life in Australia or make a permanent move to Europe because they fear... It'll just get worse. It's going to happen every... Every, Every summer, year, yeah. I mean, it was. I mean, the other day where they live, they phoned in check how things were. It was forty-seven degrees, you know, which is yeah. and windy. So mm. it's going to be fire. Yep, <laughs> that's real. So it may well be that, and my son, who when I had the stroke, took over the street theatre performances with his own company, the Chipolatas, mm-hmm. and they've got a. Uh, is now, now he's got a bit older, started doing some storytelling. Mm. So he's now 40, 45, and he's, he didn't want, but I mean, I think there were stories that I couldn't tell until I was older. I mean, there is a story, probably the most important story I tell, it's one again from Duncan Williamson, called Death in a Nut. And it's a story about mortality. Mm. I think you've got to be old enough to to, understand to have dealt with mortality, really. Because when you're even 45, my son's age, you think you're invincible. Mm. You've got to live for long enough to accept that you're not Mm -hmm. before you can tell that story. Just like I had to be an inshore fisherman before I could tell the story of Davy and the Fish. Or why the sea is salty. <laughs> Maybe we could uh, hear um, one or two stories in your style. Um, if you want to take yeah. a break first. or I'll tell a story which yeah. uh, is a be careful what you wish for story. Mm. Which although it's an old traditional story that uh, feels appropriate to be telling this one. On the eve of Brexit. (laughs) Uh, Be careful what you wish for, story. Yeah. There was once a man who was desperately unlucky. He had no food and no money. And as if that wasn't bad enough, he had a wife who was desperate to have a baby. No matter how hard they tried, they couldn't have a baby. No food, no money, no baby. And his mother was completely blind what could he do he thought the least he could do was to feed them so he borrowed a gun and he went out to the woods to shoot a rabbit for he thought he could make rabbit stew and although rabbit stew is not a great dinner it's better than no dinner at all and he was just looking for a rabbit to shoot when there was a flash of white and he parted the bushes and there in the bush with his hoof stuck in a trap was a unicorn, a snow-white horse with one spiral horn. And he thought, yum, yum, unicorn stew. And he was just about to shoot the unicorn when the unicorn looked him in the eye and said, listen, if you spare my life, I can give you one magic wish. He thought, money. The unicorn looked at him again and said, listen, money's not the answer to everything. It doesn't necessarily bring happiness. And you've only got one wish, so use it wisely. 
Now, if his first thought was for money, his second thought was for food, his third thought was for a baby, but his fourth thought was for his mother's eyesight to be healed. That's the dilemma of this story. He's only got one wish, so what does he wish for? Very often we have a discussion about which wish, but the story is called The Clever Wish. So I'll tell you the wish that he made. He thought very hard, and he wished that his mother could see him and his wife rocking their baby in a golden cradle. As he made that wish, there was a flash of blue light, and him and his wife were rocking a golden cradle with a newborn baby in it. His mother was stood at the end of the cradle, smiling and waving, for she could see. But of course, a baby doesn't need a golden cradle. So that very afternoon, they sold the golden cradle. With the money they got for the golden cradle, they bought enough food to feed the whole family for many, many months. Now they were all happy, so are we. So we'll finish now and have a cup of tea. Thank you very much. Thanks to Taffy Thomas for taking the time to speak to us about his amazing life with stories, and to Joanna for visiting Taffy and recording this interview. You can find links to Taffy's online home via the guests page of the podcast, along with his biography. Taffy very kindly performed another story for us, as well as the one in the main podcast episode, as a reward for supporters of the podcast on Patreon this month. This is being released on the Patreon page for supporters at all levels, as a thank you for continuing to help with all that we do. If you want to hear it, you can sign up for just a dollar a month and access all of the rewards at that tier. On the next episode of the Folklore Podcast, I'll be talking to author Anna Matsola about her novel The Storykeeper, set amidst the fairy lore of the Isle of Skye, and featuring a folklore collector at the heart of the story. I hope you can join us for that. In the meantime, playing us out of this episode of the podcast is Alison Callery, with her track The Song the Songbird Sings. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Sun is come into my world Love is come today Saying small and sweet thing The song
rays fall upon you as a waterfall Bathing you in light And I see this in Please, please to me, please, please to me.